Welcome to Intuitive Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Kirsten Ackerman, the Intuitive RD. I'm a non-diet registered dietitian and intuitive eating coach. My mission is to help women recover from diet culture and heal their relationship to food and body. Follow along as I speak with leading professionals in the field and explore concepts of intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. Hey guys, welcome to episode 26 of Intuitive Bites Podcast. For the episode this week, I am super excited to say that I'm chatting with Christy Harrison, who is an anti-diet dietitian and the host of Food Psych Podcast, and also the person who introduced me to intuitive eating and health at every size um, and the whole concept of non-diet nutrition uh, back when I first started listening to her podcast. So you'll probably be able to tell um, during this week's episode that I'm super, super excited to be chatting with Christy. Um, And we were chatting about just the whole concept of diet culture. Um, Christy is currently writing a book on that topic, and it's a topic that I definitely touch on a lot in my podcast, but I feel like I haven't really sat down and explained what it is, what it really entails, where it's coming from, all of that. So I learned a lot from chatting with Christy about this topic, um, and I think you guys are going to learn so, so much just about the foundations of this concept, but also like where it dates back to, where it's coming from. Um, I think you're going to find it really, really interesting. So with that, um, let's go listen to this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. All right. So we are all set. Um, Christy, I am so, so excited to chat with you about this topic of diet culture. I can't think of a better person to have this conversation with. Um, So my episodes, I really dive right in. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask you, you know, right away, you know, for your definition of what diet culture is. Absolutely. And thanks so much for having me. Um, So diet culture is really a system of beliefs that is the most common system of beliefs in Western culture. I always say like, by and large, Western culture is diet culture. And it's a system of beliefs that worships thinness as well as muscularity and particular body shapes and equates those things to health and moral virtue. And it also promotes weight loss and body reshaping as a means of attaining higher status because it does elevate thinness and particular body shapes as the most moral and the most healthy. And it also demonizes certain foods and food components and food groups um, while elevating others. So this idea of good and bad foods, clean and dirty foods. Um, And it finally oppresses people who don't meet up with its arbitrary standards of what health and beauty are supposed to look like. And so this has really negative impacts on people's lives because you know, if you're chasing after this unattainable ideal and you're spending your time ruminating about food and what you're eating and judging yourself about what you're eating, you can really spend your whole life thinking that you're irreparably broken, that there's something really wrong with you just because you don't look like this impossible ideal. And of course, it's impossible. So none of us do. So we don't measure up. But especially, you know, the further away you get from the thin, white, cisgender, able-bodied, usually young ideal that diet culture puts forth, the more um, 
oppression you're going to feel, the worse you're going to feel about yourself. And so, you know, and oftentimes too, I mean, that that's not to say that body image distress doesn't happen to people all across the size spectrum. And of course, there's folks who are in smaller bodies and who do sort of like, quote unquote, meet the standards in a lot of ways, but that actually feel terrible about themselves. But, you know, there's added layers of oppression that people feel when they are more, further from those standards, such as like not being able to fit into airplane seats or not being able to find clothes in their size or, you know, having to go to specialty stores and not being able to just shop in a regular mall or things like that. So there's added layers of oppression as you get larger bodied in our society and as you get further away from diet culture's ideal in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating. And fascinating has how, how as I've like kind of dug into more about diet culture and really taken a look at all of these different layers, and obviously I'm continuing to still do that. Um, I feel like, you know, when I was a nutrition student and going through my courses, I just didn't even see it because what I now see and recognize as diet culture was just normal to me, right? Like it was just like, you kind of have talked about it as like the water we swim in. Like it really felt just like, okay, this is what we do. We worry about, you know, we really obsess over what we're eating and try and eat in a perfect way. And we try and change our bodies because that's the healthiest thing to do and X, Y, Z. But really it was, it's incredible to see now um, looking back on that mentality, like how much, how many problems there were with that and how much time that I had dedicated to, you know, these things that um, are really problematic. Yes, absolutely. And I really call it the life thief because it steals people's time. It steals people's energy and vitality and ability to have joy in their lives and spontaneity and pleasure. And it also steals people's money. You know, it's a, it's a, well, the weight loss and diet industry sort of officially is a $66 billion operation. But then if you include quote unquote wellness in that, like, you know, this idea of so-called healthy eating that's really coming out of diet culture's belief system that's actually like more than a 600 billion dollar operation so it's it's big money too you know it's it steals people's lives in all sorts of different ways and Mm -hmm. it really is like the water that we swim in it's it's everywhere it's in children's tv programming for toddlers you know it's like it's in party conversations that people might have on a casual weekend it's in you know certainly in the curriculum for dietitians and i very much subscribe to it when i was becoming a dietitian myself you know and it's it's just incredibly hard to escape yeah something that i find kind of crazy is that you know i remember being a nutrition student and thinking like oh my gosh diets don't work like why do people do them you know like kind of rolling my eyes at diets but then I still didn't get it. Like I didn't get that what was going on and what the kind of things that I was prescribing and the ways I was going about help trying to help people from a really, you know, compassionate place um, was actually still that diet mentality. And I think that's something that so many people still have a hard time kind of coming to terms with. Oh, yes, it really is. Like, I think the sort of new guise of diet culture, because there are so many people who think like you who are like, well, diets don't work. We know diets are bad. Or like, I see a lot of dietitians and I was this way myself too, where it's like, well, fad diets are bad, you know, like let's debunk the fad diets. But, you know, sensible nutrition, quote unquote, is the way to go. And really that's also coming out of the same belief system, which is diet culture. And so like, 
diet culture has gotten wise to the fact that people don't think quote unquote diets work anymore. You know, people are savvy of like, oh, I don't do diets. I'm not on a diet anymore. And so now in order to maintain itself and its hold over us, it's really shape shifted into this form that's like, oh yeah, we're not about diet. This is a, this is not a diet. This is a lifestyle change. You know, this isn't a diet. This is wellness. And so it's able to maintain its um, position and its primacy and its power to take our money and, and to take our time and our energy as well um, by just labeling itself as something different when in fact it's absolutely the same thing. And that's why, you know, in my definition of diet culture, I like to really call out the specific beliefs and the fact that it's like, it doesn't matter what it calls itself. You know, if it demonizes some foods while elevating others, it's a diet. Like it's part of diet culture, you know, so that people can start to really see through those sneaky manifestations because I think, you know, as, as long as we allow it to be sneaky, as long as it is able to shape shift and morph into these different forms that people don't recognize and where people can like genuinely believe like, oh yeah, I'm not dieting. I'm just doing something for my health. And in fact, they're part of diet culture. Like as long as that happens, we're never truly going to be free. We're never going to be liberated from this oppressive system. And so we have to be able to recognize the oppression for what it is. We have to be able to recognize it in all of its sneaky forms in order to be able to say no and truly step away. Yeah. And I think even expanding on that, I think the people who are selling these lifestyle change type things or really promoting them or they're, you know, healthcare providers that truly believe that, you know, they're promoting of weight loss pursuits or whatever is beneficial and the healthiest thing that they could be doing to help their patients or whatever. Like that is, I feel like so, so it's so tricky because people are putting their time and energy and their dedication into something that is causing harm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's the real tricky part of this is like that individuals can, excuse me, I have a little bit of a cold that I'm recovering from still. Um, individuals, you know, feel like they're doing good and they want to do good and they, they're doing their best to help people. And so, you know, these individuals, like how I was when I first started out as a dietitian too, you know, really caught up in diet culture, really believing what it sold to us and what it, you know, the lies that it perpetuated and inadvertently going on to spread those and to um, reinforce diet culture in our work when in fact, you know, that's actually doing more harm to the people we work with. And so I really advocate, you know, for, because I know your audience is probably a lot of healthcare professionals and really like we have to have compassion for ourselves for having done this. We have to have compassion for ourselves for having fallen into the diet culture trap in the first place because healthcare providers are people too. Like we all are human and we grew up in this culture just like everyone else with the same pressures on us that everyone else faced. And so of course we're going to internalize that stuff. And then we also have to forgive ourselves and give ourselves compassion for having harmed our clients because, you know, we didn't know any better, right? We were steeped in diet culture from a young age and then we were trained in like kind of the belly of the beast, you know, for a lot of, I think, pretty much all the healthcare professions that I can think of, the dominant paradigm in our training is diet culture. And so even if you're like a therapist or something where you get very little education on, you know, eating disorders and diet related stuff, it's still coming from this paradigm of like, oh, some, you know, if a person is in a larger body, it means they have unexplored trauma that they need to release and then they can release the weight or whatever, which is like a diet culture belief. You know, there, there are these harmful beliefs that elevate, again, certain body sizes and demonize others. 
and demonize certain foods while elevating others and all the rest. And it's that stuff that we have to really unpack from our training and also from our life as humans in this Western culture um, in order to do better, in order to not do harm, but also have compassion for ourselves along the way because, again, we didn't know what we didn't know. And so in the process of learning what we didn't know and starting to understand it and, and you know, see where it shows up in our work, we actually are taking the steps to do better. So we can feel good about the fact that like now we're aware and that's really, you know, they always say knowing it's half the battle. I feel like the percentage of the battle really varies depending on what you're talking about, but it's a large part of the battle certainly. And so, you know, give yourself compassion and, and give yourself some kudos now for knowing. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, I'm really curious too to pick your brain a little bit about um, where like this whole diet culture thing like started being a thing and like are we like in the thick of it? Is it just like getting worse and worse? Like where did this start and why? Yeah, it's such a fascinating history and I'm actually tracing it in my book and you know there's like dozens of other books that have been written just about that subject. So it's really a big, um, juicy topic. But really from what I've found, it's like the last 150 years or so in the U.S. are when diet culture was born. So about 150 years ago in the United States, um, we started to see a, a sort of confluence of factors leading to have, leading to this idea that body size, larger body size was now undesirable and started to be demonized. And a lot of that came out of like racist ideology about what bodies were supposedly better um, and racist and sexist ideology too, because it was like, you know, there was this sort of um, terrible, fictitious hierarchy that was created around that time by actually early evolutionary biologists who posited, and of course, these were white, male, Northern European biologists doing the categorizing, and guess who they put at the top of the hierarchy? Guess who they said was the most evolved, right? It was white males from Northern Europe. And so everyone else was like steps down the ladder from that. So it was like white Northern European women were a step down, and then Southern European men were a step down, and then Southern European women, and so on. And of course, you know, as in a lot of racist ideologies throughout time and this sort of had its, this um, ideology that they are creating or this, this fictitious hierarchy they're creating had its roots in racist ideas about bodies that were already circulating at the time because of slavery and the sort of idea that like people had to justify the, the, you know, practice of slavery by making people of color out to be inferior or less than. And so on this fictitious evolutionary hierarchy that these biologists were creating, people of color were at the bottom. And specifically, black people were like the lowest rung. And so from that, like the, the early evolutionary biologists started to study um, what made different people, quote unquote, more or less evolved. And it sounds like bizarre and just wild today to think about it, but this was like cutting edge science at the time, you know? So they were like measuring people's head sizes, measuring the sizes of their nose, measuring the sizes of their butts, measuring the sizes of everything, you know, and cataloging these things and saying like, well, <clears throat> excuse me, like less evolved people have larger this part and larger that part. And, and so it was determined that like, hmm, you know, these less evolved quote unquote people of color, like seem to have larger bodies and so, and, and more fat on their bodies and God only knows like where they were getting this information. Right. Because of course that's not 
uh, true across the board. And of course, it goes without saying that like no racial group is more or less evolved than any other and people of color have value and their lives matter. And, you know, this all was just complete garbage, the stuff that they were these biologists were doing, but that idea, those ideas got entrenched. Those ideas that like being in a larger body meant you were evolutionary infer- evolutionarily inferior got entrenched in American and Western thinking about body size and also British. Um, <clears throat> and so it started to be sort of disseminated, this idea that like you want to be in a smaller body in order to be sort of more morally good and more evolved and at like a better human being, basically. And at the same time, there were a lot of um, changes happening in the American food system, like the Industrial Revolution was happening. And so um, ready-made food and convenience food suddenly suddenly became more available. And people were having a lot of angst about what that meant for our society. So it wasn't that like, you know, it really actually wasn't that people were starting to gain weight because of the different food system. It's that there was this increasing anxiety and fear about what it meant that like people now were not working on farms and working with their hands as much, but they were moving into cities and starting to do desk work and, you know, more industrial work. And like, there was a huge cultural anxiety about what that meant for our society, um, including this idea that men were supposedly being quote unquote feminized by, by these jobs that didn't involve physical labor anymore. And so that was happening, this anxiety about like what our food system meant and what body size change, you know, the fact that body size changes might be happening, even though they weren't actually happening, but, it, you know, sort of attributed um, that this was starting to happen. And so there's that, there's like a whole bunch of other threads that I go into in the history chapter of my book and I could talk forever about this, but like, those are two sort of main ones where it's like, you know, the, the evolutionary ideas about, um, like racist ideas about bodies basically. And then the anxious cultural ideas about food and the food system and what that meant about, you know, what that said about American society. And those two things really created this sort of, um, crucible for diet culture to emerge and emerge it did. So like by the early 1900s, it was really a huge trend. And by about 1920, it was pretty firmly established in the mainstream. And from then on, it just was like off to the races. You know, it was one thing after another of like tapeworm diets that were being sold in those old Victorian magazines that you see and, um, you know, reducing belts and all these just wild, ridiculous things that were very ineffective, of course, not, um, you know, not good for people's health and also not leading to long-term weight loss either. And of course, weight loss and health are not related. There's nothing equating the two, but um, diet culture is really, you know, ineffective for people's health and for people's body size in the long term, it turns out. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is so much good information. I am like super, super pumped to read your your book and like the rest of the information on what you found out um, and also just dig more in general on that topic. I think that hearing a, l- a little bit about that history and just like recognizing that, hey, like it wasn't always like this. Like we weren't always obsessed with shrinking our bodies or like obsessed with the latest trend, the latest fad or whatever. Um, I think it's really interesting to hear about that. So I'm curious what, advice you would have to some um, for somebody who's listening who is starting to kind of dig into some of this stuff and um, you know is realizing that diet culture is a thing and they don't really want to be a part of it 
Um, what would you say is like step one or like what is a good thing for that person to start to, to start doing now to kind of help to disconnect from diet culture? Yeah, it's really, I think, a multi-part process. And so there's definitely a lot um, of things you can do. But one thing I think is really helpful is to disconnect, like you said, from a lot of the diet culture messaging around you. And so that could look like unfollowing and unsubscribing from people who are steeped in diet culture, including like friends and family, if they're in your social media feeds, talking about the weight that they lost on some diet or cleanse or whatever. Um, You know, you can actually mute them or unfollow them. You don't have to actually like, you know, you don't have to unsubscribe completely. You can, you can just say like on Facebook, you can be like, don't follow this person, but you're still their friend or whatever, you know, so they don't necessarily have to see that you've unsubscribed or unfollowed. Um, But that's really helpful because it just helps get those triggering messages out of your face every day and then cultivate a better um, social media environment. And also like a, you know, in real life environment, excuse me, if you can, um, of people who are less obsessed with, you know, less steeped in diet culture, less obsessed with dieting and food and more in line with the values that you want to espouse. And a lot of times people don't have those kind of folks in their real life, but you can find that online for sure. There's a huge anti-diet community online and you can follow people on Instagram and Facebook. You can listen to podcasts like this and my podcast where I talk to lots of guests um, from across the health at every size, anti-diet, body liberation uh, movement. And, you know, just start to cultivate an environment where you're hearing different messages, taking in different messages from all the media that you consume. And maybe if you don't have the people in your real life that you're able to talk to about this stuff, you can at least set boundaries with the people you do have in order to say like, you know, I'm really working to heal my relationship with food and break free from this diet culture that's been harming me. And in order to do that, it would really help me if we could just not talk about food and body size. And that includes like you not telling me about your latest diet. I love you and I support you, but I just don't want to hear about that stuff because it's really harmful to me in this phase of my recovery. And then if they want to know more about that, you can tell them, you know, maybe they're open to it. A lot of times people aren't, especially the people who are really gung-ho about a particular diet at this point for themselves. Like they're all about this diet and they don't want to hear anything different. So um, in that case, what you can do is really just set that boundary and say like, hey, I don't want to hear it. And then, you know, often it takes reminding people of the boundary too, because people don't always remember or don't always even understand what's going to violate a particular boundary. So, you know, if you've told like your mom, for example, like, I don't want to talk about food and body size. And then the next time you talk to her, she's all excited because she's like, ooh, I just tried this new cleanse and I lost X pounds or whatever. It's like, mom, remember what we said? Remember what I told you last time we talked or whatever about how I don't want to hear about this stuff? This is an example of that. This is an example of the kind of stuff that um, is harmful to me at this point because I'm really trying to step away from any thinking about dieting and weight loss. Yeah, that, that is so important and definitely something I've found as well. Like just in having conversations with people, you know, I'll think that you know, they'll be kind of nodding along and we'll be chatting about something. And then, you know, five minutes later, they something else pops up and I'm like, oh, okay, then we weren't totally on the same page. <laughs> it's tough. This stuff sticks really deep. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. The fact that it's culture and that it's the water we're all swimming in. It's like, it's hard for people to, you know, divest from it. Yeah, for sure. Um, Christy, can you please share with everyone where people can find you, what resources you have, all that great stuff? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So um, the best place to find me is on my website, which is christyharrison.com. There you can link to my writing, my podcast, get my email newsletter, um, all sorts of good stuff. Sign up for my online courses. Um, And speaking of my podcast, you can find that wherever you get this podcast. It's called Food Psych, which is food and then space, P-S-Y-C-H. So you can check that out there. It's another good one to fill your head with. (laughs) And then in late 2019, so probably a little under a year from now, um, my book is going to come out. It's called Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. And I really trace the history of diet culture, um, the sneaky manifestations of diet culture like we were talking about, and then how you can recover from diet culture and reclaim your life. So um, check out my website and subscribe to my email newsletter to get information about that. And I'm going to blast out news to everyone as soon as the book is available. Oh, super exciting. And I will link below to your website and your Instagram so people can find you. Thank you again so much, Christy. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. All right, guys, that is episode 26. I hope you guys thoroughly enjoyed that episode. I'm going to link below to all the places you can find Christy if you aren't already following her. Um, definitely check her stuff out. She's got so many great resources and courses um, and things that can really help you out on your journey. I'm also going to throw in here, as I always do, if you have a moment to stop over to iTunes and leave a rating for this podcast, please do so. Um, It is super, super helpful for having um, more and more people find my podcast and, you know, just get this message out even more. But I hope you guys have an awesome week. And I will chat with you all soon.